Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Sunday at GetSunday.com slash NOB and Shady Rays Sunglasses at ShadyRays.com slash NOB. As part of our Art of Living interview series, we have an amazing interview with author Ralph White. Our guest today, Ralph White, has written the excellent new book, Getting Out of Saigon. Getting Out of Saigon is the remarkable true story of a city on the eve of destruction and the colorful characters who respond differently to impending doom. It's about one man's quest to save innocent lives, not because it was ordered, but because it was the right thing to do. Thank you so much for listening. We have got a great guest today whom I will introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 708th episode when I spoke to Hollywood casting director Joel Thurm, who has written the new book, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian associate, former National Park Ranger, and historian John Martini. We discussed the infamous Alcatraz Island. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better show audience. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need about us. In April 1975, Ralph White was asked by his boss to transfer from the Bangkok branch of the Chase Manhattan Bank to the Saigon branch. He was tasked with closing the branch if and when it appeared that Saigon would fall to the North Vietnamese Army and ensure the safety of the senior Vietnamese employees. But when he arrived, Ralph White realized the situation in Saigon was far more perilous than he had imagined. The senior staff members there urged him to evacuate the entire staff of the branch and their families, which was far more than he was authorized to do. Quickly, he realized that no one would be safe when the city fell, and it was no longer a question of whether to evacuate, but how. I um, I picked a, um, a reading, uh, it's under four minutes. Um, uh, it usually takes me about three and a half minutes, 3.45, something like that. Um, and it's near the end of the book. I picked it, uh, and I'll explain at the end. I'll tell you at the end why I picked it. Uh, But let me uh, uh, just go ahead and read it now. With little to occupy me until the embassy bus found us at 7 o'clock, I wandered around Saigon's District 1, curious about what happens when a city is gradually removed from life support. The buildings were not going anywhere. The Basilica of Notre Dame would always be there. The post office, the opera house, the three hotels in my life, the Majestic, Continental, and Caramel. The French colonial villas would continue to crack and crumble, just as the French themselves would become forgotten and their language unrecalled. The blue flame of carnal desire at the Tennessee and New York bars would struggle to produce honey on far less money. The President's Palace would be rebranded, and some of the streets would acquire the names of North Vietnamese generals, or as off the communist custom, revolutionary slogans. 
The botanical garden should survive communism, but there would be no defending the captive animals at the zoo from a starving populace. The Chase Manhattan Bank, being close to the port, might make a good import-export office. Tansanut Air Base, with its ultra-long runways and massive in- infrastructure, would make a world-class airport. The U.S. Embassy would inevitably be demolished. The victors might try to rename the city itself, but it had been called Saigon, meaning Kapok Forest, for two and a half centuries, and that might prove too hard a habit to break. Once the idea visited me to pay my last respects at the Terrace Cafe at the Continental Hotel, I was powerless to do otherwise. Somerset Mom had been charmed to the same location for its merry ambiance at what he called the hour of the aperitif. A decade before I was born, Mom took particular care to describe the Continental's open-air terrace with its bearded, gesticulating Frenchmen and their sweet beverages. Mom, I bless him and wonder, called Saigon a blithe and a smiling little place. If any part of that Saigon were to survive the coming onslaught, it would be on that very terrace. But if the spirit hovering there were butchered along with the animals of the zoo, then the next most likely survivors would be the blue-hued demons on Tudor Street. Where Mom discovered bearded, gesticulating Frenchmen, I found the U.S. Embassy's Minister-Counselor Economic Affairs observing the hour of the aperitif in contemplative solitude. Hi, Danny, may I join you? Ellerman looked pleased to see me. Hi, Ralph. The metal chair screeched against the ceramic floor as I pulled it away from the table, and a waiter ambled over. I described the drink I'd invented around Hank Steenbergen's swimming pool on the day John Linker recruited me for Saigon. Freshly squeezed lime juice, raw sugar, and cheap whiskey in any proportion convenient to the barman. Above the waiter's head, slowly rotating ceiling fans whisked galaxies of insects into spiral clouds. Paul, I picked that uh, that uh, that piece uh, so that uh, your uh, your listeners, your audience, uh, when they visit Saigon, they can sit on the the terrace of the Continental Hotel and order a whiskey sour and. Uh, and conjure up uh, this vision of Saigon. Thank you, Ralph. Yes, uh, well chosen. That was perfect. Well, Ralph White, author of the wonderful, exciting, fabulous new book, Getting Out of Saigon, welcome to the program. I've had a chance to read the book. You've shared it with me. Uh, Also very generous of you. Thank you. It is an amazing book. It's just a fantastic story. I'm excited to talk to you about this. And I want to just kind of jump in and and, and lay some foundation here because you, you say that you're an ordinary guy faced with extraordinary circumstances who rose to the occasion. I think that's, that's very well put, but I I have to tell you, Ralph White, I, uh, I think you and I are uh, we we share some similarities. You've had much much more exciting life than I ever had. But I was a finance guy at Treasury, 
Um, like you, I have a, a an MBA. I think you could you could describe yourself as a as a finance guy, um, but not a member of the of the SEAL team at all. Yet here you are rescuing, saving these 113 Vietnamese civilians. That must have taken a great deal of bravery. And so, tell us a little bit about where that came from and your upbringing, your family. Were you um, a brave person? Did your did you have some examples of bravery in your life that led you to this point? And what led you to being in Saigon at that point in time, too? This is 1975, I believe. Um, well, I'd, um, I, was, uh, I was a very junior officer in the Chase Manhattan Bank at the time. I, uh, the way it worked, it's, it's kind of funny. If you did well in the, uh, in the management training program, you got your choice of assignment. If you didn't do well, then they told you where you were going. <laughs> uh, and so I did well, and uh, and they said, "Well, where would you like to go?" And I said, "I said Bangkok, so Thailand." So uh, that's where I was uh, when uh, the northern provinces started falling uh, to the North Vietnamese. And uh, management, senior management, uh, came and recruited me uh, because I uh, I knew I'd, I'd worked in Saigon in uh, Vietnam before. I uh, had a rudimentary vocabulary. I don't claim to speak the language. Uh, I knew my way around, and I liked Saigon, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't difficult at all for them to uh, talk me into going. Um, as for um, as for the uh, the success of the mission there, and 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 the what factors went into it, uh, I really I want to. Make sure I start off right at the top by crediting uh, a couple of foreign service officers who, uh, without whose help, I never, ever could have done it. Uh, Ken Moorfield uh, ran the evacuation control center, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about him a little later. Uh, Shep Lohman uh, was married, was also a foreign service officer. He was uh, married to a Vietnamese, and he's the one who came up with the uh, the clandestine program to uh, to get uh, Vietnamese out uh, behind the ambassador's back. So I also have to uh, to credit uh, uh, the military officers. I, they're too numerous to name, but uh, uh, General Smith, uh, uh, Homer Smith, and uh, Colonel uh, Madison at the Defense Attaché Office. Uh, as the book makes abundantly clear, I uh, I also credit uh, sheer luck. Uh, and I, I really can't overstate that. Uh, you asked, you asked about my family, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't really have to very hard uh, to find uh, some gallantry there. Uh, mm. My father was a dive bomber pilot mm. uh, aboard the U.S. Yorktown in World War II. Uh, he was a naval aviator before, uh, uh, between college and medical school. Uh, it was also my father who taught me firearms. Uh, as for school, uh, I was captain of my high school wrestling team and, uh, it was pretty tame. That was my only exposure to hand-to-hand combat. <laughs> uh, uh, as far as the charge of bravery, uh, I think I characterize it more as, uh, a risk evaluation than, uh, and, and avoidance, risk evaluation and avoidance, uh, more than bravery. In fact, the one time in the book uh, when my bravery came into play, I made a nearly 
catastrophic decision. I'm referring to the incident on the bus uh, uh, when the the South Vietnamese officer came aboard to uh, to see if we had any draft age boys, and I was prepared to defend them at all mm-hmm. costs. Uh, I that that would have been just a total mm-hmm. disaster. Mm-hmm. And you traveled with a briefcase full of money and a gun. You talked about uh, your firearms training. Do you think you would have been able to have pulled that gun out or pulled a weapon out and uh, just, you know, used that bravery in just that setting and defended, uh, you know, that bus? I, I, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to have this conversation. I'll be perfectly frank. Uh, uh, When I, I, I have nightmares about it. Hmm. I, uh, I had made the decision to kill him. Uh, That, that was, that was not a, an upcoming decision for me to make. My hand was on the gun. The, the, the hammer was back. My finger was on the trigger. I'd made a decision to kill him. If he had made an effort to take one of my boys off the bus, I was going to kill him, and that was all there was to it. Just shoot him dead right there on the bus and, and tell the driver to, uh, to get us through the gates of continuity. You know, in retrospect, I mean, I had... I had $25,000 in cash in that same uh, leather briefcase. Mm-hmm. Instead, of having, instead of having my hand on the gun, I should have had my hand on a wad of, of 20s and, and, and just walked up to him and given it to him and said, look, get off my bus. You know, let us be. Uh, take, this, take this money and have a nice life. I, I, but it just didn't occur to me. It was, a, it was a, just a terrible, terrible decision. And I'm so glad he turned around and walked away. The Times just called for what they called for, and the, the hostilities, the tension. Uh, the book is is um, is a real. Um, it, it, it's a testament to all of that bravery, kindness too. And so let's, because I can hear it in your voice how how, how, move, how moving this was to you. And so let's let's talk a little bit about Saigon. Maybe shift gears a little bit because Saigon really is this beautiful city, very European. And um, you mentioned uh, Somerset Mom in the reading, and there's a great deal of romance that uh, is evoked as as during that time in Saigon. You must have just fallen in love with that city and the people. You know, I did. I uh, it, it started off as an affection for all of Southeast Asia, uh, and I worked in Thailand, and I and I I speak Thai quite fluently, and I uh, have a, a a good a profound affection for. Uh, the Thai people. I, I worked in in uh, Vietnam first, uh, four years before the events in this book. Uh, I worked there with American Express uh, on a military base in the Central Highlands, and and I uh, formed a lot of my uh, uh, my thoughts and uh, my evaluation uh, back in those days um, about Saigon itself. Um, I will say it was a delight. Uh, by the time I got there the first time in 1971, its European glory had already begun to fade, uh, albeit gently. Um, it wasn't; it was no longer Mom's blithe and smiling little place. After all, there had been 30 years of war, civil war there. Uh, but it was—I would call it—comfortably exciting. Hmm. 
Um, the people were wonderful. They're, attra- they're an attractive people. The men and the women are very, very attractive. The food is absolutely delicious. Hmm. The language is very difficult. There's so many uh, glottal stops. I, I, can, I can give you a few words to show you, but mm-hmm. it, was, it won't sound very... Uh, so it was, it was more economically depressed than any European city. So it really it didn't resemble a European city in that sense. It was European-esque. Uh, it had a fragrance of garlic and fish sauce and flowers and diesel exhaust and a permanent layer of dust hanging above the ground because a lot of the roads were not paved. Um, did I love Saigon? Well, at the time, I think I didn't. Uh, looking back now, I'd say yes, I do. Over the years, Saigon has grown on me. Hmm. I do love Saigon. In hearing this uh, from you, you know, about the people and the food and, and the surrounding uh, community of, of Saigon, as it became clear to you that you you just were going to be be faced with this this act this this um remove this evacuation describe for us the feeling that you had that shifted from this idea of saigon as being this uh, this lovely community with the wonderful people and the the food and and everything that came along with saigon and the feeling of desperation as you began thinking about how are we going to pull this off and working with the state department and the foreign service officers you know paul i think what uh made things less desperate for me than than you might think was that um was my approach. I had resolved uh, to do my best uh, to get all of my employees and all of their families to safety outside Vietnam. If my best had resulted in getting only the officers out or only half of the employees, then I was prepared to live with that outcome. It was really only at the 11th hour, uh, as I described in the book, that the possibility of getting all of them out turned into a probability, that that possibility turned into a probability. Uh, as for what you're calling sheer effort, there was, I will say, I was very busy. I, I, mm-hmm. I was a busy picture, uh, hopping from embassy office to the defense attache to the airport, uh, back to the port. I was, I was tireless in, uh, in my efforts, but, but um, the book makes it clear that uh, sheer luck played uh, a, a role equally as decisive as sheer effort. Hi, it's Paul. We'll be right back with author Ralph White, author of the new book, Getting Out of Saigon, and this amazing true story. But, you know, I wanted to mention our sponsor today, Shady Rays Sunglasses. Over the years, I know, at least for myself and for many of you in our Not Old Better Show audience, we have bought a lot of sunglasses. Styles change and good sunglasses are important to our outside vision protection. We all know this. But what is even more maddening is not losing my sunglasses, but breaking them. 
I'll tell you, this is not for me anymore. Ever since I got Shady Rays, our sponsor today, I get high-quality sunglasses that are just as good and, in my opinion, even better than expensive ones. And Shady Rays are far less expensive. Importantly, though, Shady Rays are durable, built to tackle all of life's outdoor adventures. I love to be outside, especially during the summer months. But sometimes I'm active. And my sunglasses, they bend and break occasionally. Shady Ray styles, though, are timeless and on point. They make me look good, in my opinion. Plus, all the Shady Ray's glasses have polarized lenses for crystal clear vision and strong sun protection. That's the real test of a good pair of sunglasses. Speaking of strong, here's why I don't worry about losing or breaking my Shady Ray's ever. Every pair of Shady Rays is backed by their industry-leading Lost and Broken Replacements program. Break or lose your pair the second you take them out of the box? Well, they'll send you a replacement pair, no questions asked. Shady Rays isn't happy unless you're happy. That's why they give you 30 days to try them. And if you don't like them, you can exchange or return them for free. Here's something always important. To our Not Old Better Show audience, eager to give back, with every order, the Shady Rays Impact Program works with nonprofits worldwide to make an impact on the lives of children and young adults, like building play sets for pediatric cancer patients and creating adventures for young adults with cancer and MS. You and Shady Rays are making an impact together. This is such a great program. I mentioned this previously, but I wear contact lenses, and my eyes are super sensitive to sunlight, making sunglasses an essential item for me. I need quality sun protection with polarized lenses. Just got to have it. Not only do I get amazing sun protection with Shady Rays with their polarized lenses, but the styles are fantastic for my face. Again, I do say so myself. And the frame durability, well pretty darn indestructible in my experience. What's better than getting one pair of Shady Rays and not worrying if you break or lose them? Getting two. Go to ShadyRays.com slash NOB and use code NOB for a limited time when you buy one pair of Shady Rays. You'll get the second pair free. That's Shady Rays, S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S.com slash NOB. Use the code NOB to get a second pair of Shady Rays free. ShadyRays.com slash NOB, code NOB. All this will be in our show notes. Thanks, everybody. You know, I mentioned that today's show is brought to you by Sunday, as in GetSunday.com. Let's talk quickly about our sponsor, Sunday. You know, we do talk about this subject a lot on the show. You all know how much I enjoy being outside, especially since it's starting to get warm and the spring weather is absolutely our favorite. It's great to have the sun on my face and the sun on the flowers, the lawn, everything just perks right up. Speaking of lawn, this time of year is crucial to lawn care and prep. You may love spring, like me, but you may not love the prep and upkeep for a beautiful lawn. What makes the spring season even better is Sunday lawn care. Where to start, though? Well, 
That's where Sunday comes in. Sunday is everything you need to get the lawn you've dreamed up. No trips to the store or hauling heavy bags since they ship straight to your home. You just need a hose to apply Sunday. What could be easier? You can fertilize your whole lawn in less time than it takes to watch an episode of your favorite TV show. And they only use ingredients you can feel good about. No harsh chemicals, no long waiting periods, or trying to keep your pets off the lawn. Simply apply, let it dry, and you're back to enjoying your yard. As a matter of fact, this spring, you can go to getsunday.com slash NOB and enter your address to get a customized plan created just for your lawn. It's amazing. I've done that and it is fantastic. Sunday is easy and affordable. Some lawn care services cost more than $1,500 a year, but Sunday's full season plans start at just $109. And Sunday is offering the Not Old Better Show listeners 20% off. So full seasons, so full season plans start at just 109 bucks. You can get 20% off of that when you visit getsunday.com slash NOB at checkout. That's 20% off your custom plan at getsunday.com slash NOB. All of this will be in our show notes. But thanks, everybody. We are with author Ralph White. Ralph White has written the new book, Getting Out of Saigon, How a 27-Year-Old American Banker Saved 113 Vietnamese Civilians. We will put links up so that our author, so that our audience can find out more about Ralph White and his new book. Well, the book is already getting um, some wonderful reviews from those who have read it. I'm going to add my name to that to that growing list, but I'll tell you a name who really is going to catch everybody's attention: um, Nelson DeMille, uh, who, of course, is a New York Times best-selling author, former U.S. Army first lieutenant knows a thing or two about uh, many of these subjects, Ralph White. He says, Nelson DeMille says, a must read for those of us who were there, for those of us who watched the fall of Saigon on the six o'clock news, for those who lived through that dark period of American history and for a younger generation who have seen the documentaries and read the books, Ralph White's Getting Out of Saigon opens old wounds, but also heals an amazing tour de force and a stunning human drama set against the cataclysm of a lost war. What a great, great comment on just a great book. Let's talk a little bit about this plan, a little bit more detail, if you if you could share with us. As this kind of came to fruition, you became very aware that you were going to have to do this. You were surrounded by um, a cast of characters that uh, were helpful, supportive, but I wonder if you'd describe some of those people because uh, in, at one point in the book, you refer to them as being colorful characters that you encountered and and how they in turn responded to um, to what was a very apparent, uh, you know, kind of doom, just very imminent doom. Okay. Well, you've, uh, you've touched on a few uh, areas in your question. Uh, as far as the plan, um, it would be hard to describe, or I should say, it would be hard to believe. I, I say hmm. this because no matter, no matter the odds, people will mostly believe that the worst won't happen to them. We, we all tend toward optimism, even in, even in the darkest hour. And it was no different in Saigon, uh, long after its fate was sealed. 
the bank's customers stood politely in line to withdraw their money. Employees uh, uh, continued going about their business. Uh, I would say there was tension, mm-hmm. but no- nowhere near real panic. Of course, there was panic in the northern provinces where the, the enemy troops were present. But Saigon was a study in hope over reason. Uh, as for the colorful characters, Hollywood could not have come up with a more <laughs> clearly antagonist, you know, who I'm mentioning, than uh, U.S. Ambassador uh, Graham Martin. Uh, he was physically ill. He had pneumonia. Uh, he was mentally ill, too. A 10-year-old could have made more rational decisions than he did. I- I'll go so far as to say that the only reason we have the phrase the fall of Saigon in our vocabulary now is Martin's incompetence. Hmm. He fiddled as Saigon burned. It, it could and should have been a phase withdrawal uh, beginning with the, the 1973 peace accord, uh, Paris Accords. Uh, the only reason we have these iconic images of helicopters uh, lifting uh, desperate people off of rooftops is Graham Martin's psychotic uh, denial of reality. Hmm. Uh, but along with the, the generationally uh, bad guys, there were some generational heroes present there too. I'll tell you that. Uh, Shep Lohman, uh, a foreign service officer at the embassy, is still revered as saintly by Vietnamese for his uh, rescue of thousands of uh, refugees and and after the war of political prisoners. Uh, As far as uh, Ken Moorfield, I mentioned him before. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just uh, wrote a note to uh, the White House recommending uh, Ken Moorfield for the Presidential Medal of Freedom Mm -hmm. uh, for his uh, life-saving heroics as uh, officer in charge of the evacuation control center at Tanzanud Air Base. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, he deserves uh, an honor like this, and I, I hope he's able to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more guy I have to add <clears throat> to the, uh, to the pantheon of heroes. There was uh, Bob Lanigan, who now goes by the name Russell Mott. He's reverted to his, his birth name. Uh, he rescued uh, thousands of desperate refugees uh, by taking them down barges on the Saigon River. I described that also in the book. Uh, he's quite possibly the most fearless person I've ever met. Uh, and I've recently uh, gotten together with him uh, uh, three or four times. Uh, he's a hell of a guy. Well, again, the book is titled Getting Out of Saigon, How a 27-Year-Old American Banker Saved 113 Vietnamese Civilians. The number 113 shows up in a lot of places, and um, literally you, your team responsible for those 113 people, they weren't on any official list to be evacuated. So how did you, how did you come up with that number, the, those people? How did you gather everyone to make this, you know, process work? You know, it's it's very interesting that you ask about this. I uh, I only recently learned how the various levels of uh, priority employees were identified. At the time, I did not know. Hmm. Um, when I was sent in to Saigon by 
to chase Manhattan senior officers. Uh, my my primary mission was to get the four officers out. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I if I could get more, then maybe I I could try to get out the department heads. I don't know how many more that was. Maybe ten. So maybe maybe fourteen employees. I was going to try to get out. Uh, never once in our conversations did did it come up that that I would try to get all of them out. I, I, I only knew the four officers by name. You remember that uh, Saigon was a, a temporary assignment for me. I didn't mm-hmm. know them. Mm-hmm. So when time came, um, to your point, when time came to uh, select who was going and who was staying, I delegated that decision uh, uh, to uh, my deputy manager, Mr. Kung. Now, that's the way I left it. That's the way it was lodged in my memory for the last 48 years. And then recently I, I met uh, the woman who actually made that decision, hmm. who was going and who was staying. Um, uh, unknown to me until very recently, Mr. Kung uh, delegated that decision to an assistant manager named Nguyen Ming uh, And only about a year ago, when I, 48 years, did I learn that she had made that decision. She was the uh, assistant manager for operations. And uh, the personnel people uh, reported to her. So uh, she actually knew everybody in the branch. And uh, she was the best person to make that decision. And if I had known, if I had known that about her at the time, I might have delegated it to her, but I never knew that it had been her decision to make. She said it was absolutely the most agonizing task of her life. The book is in- incredible. The research, though, is impressive, too. The index is um, chock-a-block full of just some great, great bits of information that I know my audience is going to want to leaf through. Normally, indexes are um, um Sometimes not what people look for in in reading the book, but this one is worth spending some time with, and and your research deserves a lot of uh, credit, Ralph White. I, I wonder did did you recreate this story all from your memory? The book is is a memoir in in many ways. Did you make notes at the time? Did you find a lot of primary research that you were able to rely on? And it, were there photographs that could kind of um, you know, prod your, your memory a little bit on some of these subjects? Uh, you know, it's astonishing. As I, as I, uh, as I read over the various uh, versions of the manuscript uh, after I'd, uh, I, I basically wrote it, wrote the book in 10 months wow. uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, uh, I went back and edited it and I, I worked with my, uh, my agent uh, editing it and uh, my editor at Simon and Schuster editing it. And but each time I I went through it I I was astonished how much I I I'd actually locked up in my memory hmm. and and that uh, uh, part there are a couple of reasons first is uh, I'd written a very detailed memorandum uh, to the senior management of the Chase Manhattan Bank explaining well I had I had to explain why they sent me to to bring back four people and I brought back 113. Uh, so I had some explaining to, uh, I, uh, I, uh, 
so I wrote a very detailed uh, uh, memorandum that went up the chain of command. Um, and I also, uh, about, about three years after this uh, operation, let me call it an operation, um, I was, uh, I testified for the bank where the bank was sued by one of the uh, commercial um, uh, clients. And I was called in uh, to testify at the, the trial in the bank's defense. And in, uh, in prepping for that uh, trial, I, I went over uh, in minute detail every aspect of the operation, and, and it reinforced it in my memory. Um, also, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Paul. While it didn't seem terribly exceptional to me at the time, I mean, it's not like I thought everybody did it, but I didn't think it was terribly exceptional. Hmm. The more I played it over my memory, the more terrified I became. I became retroactively terrified at just how badly things could have gone wrong. And, and the, the imagination runs wild when you, when you think about how the, my, my employees would have suffered if, if things hadn't worked out the way it did. I think for me, writing the book was, in a sense, getting it off my chest and mm. purging the demons. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I can tell. I can tell you that I feel a lot better about it right now. I could hear it in your voice as you were talking about um, the exchange uh, with the um, North, North Vietnamese soldier on the bus and and uh, just the the decisional um, process that you went through. And, and so I, I can I can tell. I, I know our audience will be be equally moved. So let's talk about kind of the evacuation process itself. Um, because we all did see pictures, just as Nelson DeMille says, we remember well those news reports on the 6 o'clock news of the helicopters taking off of the roof. You were going to go to the Philippines, or that was the intention perhaps. President Marcos, then president of the Philippines at the time, did not want any Vietnamese refugees whatsoever. So you ended up in Guam, a little further away perhaps, but you got there. And there's a funny kind of interesting story. Um, that's associated with with Guam and and the the man who was in charge of the Guam refugees and maybe tell us a little bit about that whole process how you ended up in Guam and and just touch on I I certainly want to encourage our audience to go and get this book and read it but that I thought that was a really kind of interesting story with kind of a really odd connection to somebody very very famous and uh, <laughs> <laughs> you might want to just share that quickly. I know what you're referring to. Um, well, you've, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, just put a word in about Nelson. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. He's, uh, I, I hardly knew Nelson DeMille. I, of course, I, I'd read, I'd read many, many of his books. <laughs> right. I, I admired him very much. Uh, he's a member of uh, a beach club I'm in. I see him occasionally from time to time. You know, we're, we're not, we weren't friends. I, we were acquaintances. And I approached him with some trepidation about a blurb. And when he came back with the one you just read, mm -hmm. my jaw, I just, I just thought, well, this is the definition of a gentleman mm -hmm. who, a great man who, uh, who, you know, just 
takes a, a request from a simple guy like me and, and gives me a, an encomium like that, he's just a, a quintessential gentleman. Mm-hmm. Can't say enough about Nelson. Um, on to your question about uh, the evacuation process in the Philippines and all. Uh, you, there are a couple of questions there, so let me give you a couple answers. First, yes, uh, Ferdinand Marcos was adamant that the Philippines would not accept uh, thousands of Vietnamese, uh, no matter how desperate they might be. Now, in, in retrospect, with our 21st century eyes, it looks very inhumane. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know his reasoning, and, and at this point, it doesn't really matter. Things worked out. Um, your, your question about the, the, the famous connection at, <laughs> at Tent City and Guam, mm-hmm. I didn't know it at the time. I, I only learned it really afterward. Uh, uh, the uh, Tent City was uh, under the command of uh, Admiral Steve Morrison, who was the father of The Doors' lead guitarist and singer, <laughs> Jim Morrison. And, and uh, incidentally, it was Admiral Morrison who, uh, who named that project, that Tent City. He named it Operation New Life. Hmm. Uh, and it was a lifesaver for, for uh, I've now read, uh, for some 30,000 refugees including me. I was a refugee. I, for, for those uh, two weeks following uh, the evacuation from Saigon, I, <clears throat> I flew on cargo jets, uh, sitting on the floor of cargo jets. I slept on cots in barracks and in tents. And I, uh, where, wherever my refugees went, I went with them. So, so uh, Operation New Life uh, had a meeting for me hmm. as well as for uh, my well, you're you're a very special guy, and um, yes, kind of Nelson DeMille to write this, but the book deserves um, that kind of uh, sentiment and uh, really heartfelt um, mention and, and reference. And again, I, I I just cannot recommend this story enough. Getting out of Saigon: How a 27 year old American banker saved 113 Vietnamese civilians. I wonder if you just take us out just as a final question for you. Talk about the CODA, um, because I really I do like that term, the Operation New Life. There, there were some sad endings, but many, um, many survived and, and thrived in America and have made outstanding United States citizens. And and you you reference that in in your kind manner throughout the book, and I think that's a good message for us. So maybe take us out and tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. I'm glad you're giving me the opportunity to uh, to to address that issue. Um, for four decades, I failed to make any contact with the Vietnamese refugees, and when I finished the manuscript, uh, that's the way things stood. Uh, but because of uh, uh, the pandemic and supply chain issues, uh, my publication date was uh, uh, deferred for ten months, and. Uh, I stepped up my efforts to uh, to find the refugees. One of the things I did was I, I signed up. I attended a uh, a Lunar New Year gala uh, of uh, the Vietnamese uh, community in New Jersey, and I uh, 
I, by chance, by the sheerest chance, I sat next to a woman who, she asked me, what are you doing here? And, and I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm Ralph. Why I brought a bunch of refugees out from who worked at the Chase Manhattan Bank in Saigon, and I'm, I'm trying to find them. And she said, oh, one of my best friends used to work for the Chase Manhattan Bank in Saigon. Wow. Do, do you know somebody named Nga? And I said, you mean Minya? She said, yes, her. And she picked up her phone and called Minya. And I was talking to her a minute later. Uh, after 40 years of trying to, to find, uh, uh, to make contact. And through, through Minya, I've now made contact with some uh, 25 survivors uh, of that event, that adventure uh, so long ago. Um, and I've, I, the publisher has given me a couple of boxes of, uh, of complimentary uh, copies of, of the book. And I have sent each of my refugee families a copy of the book mm. and uh and i've uh now i'm getting some of the sweetest kindest emotional notes back from them uh in uh, in 19 the way i express it is in 1975 i rescued refugees and take today with the book i'm rescuing memories mm. it's a it's a very happy ending mm -hmm. uh I heard from one refugee just yesterday uh, telling me how much he appreciates my bringing his family to America. And he said all of his children went to college and uh, one of them earned a PhD in virology from Harvard. Wow. Uh, all of my refugees became American citizens just as I knew they would. And they've become great American citizens. Fantastic. Just fantastic. Uh, again, the book is Getting Out of Saigon, How a 27-Year-Old American Banker Saved 113 Vietnamese Civilians. Author Ralph White has been our guest. Congratulations, Ralph White, on this wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, again, we'll put links so that our audience can find it uh, easily, find you, find more information about um, your, your work, your heroic work. The book is just uh, uh, truly a... Uh, a, a great one for our times. I'm so grateful that you've uh, shared some of your time with us. My best to you. I, I understand in some of my research, maybe maybe you can't really share too much about that about this, but but I'll I'll mention it um, offhandedly that I read that the book is getting some attention from uh, the folks in Hollywood, maybe a movie. And so I will just say this, Ralph White, once that happens, uh, we'd love to have you back and talk more about this because it, uh, it'll make a great movie. So congrats on everything. My best to you. Have a great rest of your day and uh, good luck with this book. Thanks, Paul. And uh, thanks to the Smithsonian for giving my refugee story a recorded home. My thanks to Sunday at GetSunday.com slash NOB and Shady Rays Sunglasses at ShadyRays.com slash NOB for sponsoring today's show. Please support our sponsors who so generously sponsor the show. My thanks to Ralph White for generously reading and, of course, for his new book. Congratulations, Ralph. The new book is entitled Getting Out of Saigon. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show, Art of Living interview series audience on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe. And let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. And we will see you next week.